0: Welcome to 5 Things About, I'm Chris Hatzis. 5 Things About is for you and your inner curious cat. The part of you that just loves to know what others know about inventions, ideas, people and places. You've heard the proverb, curiosity killed the cat. The rest of the proverb is, but satisfaction brought it back. So go on, knock yourself out and bring yourself back. Today we're speaking with Carly Findlay who writes for ABC Online, Daily Life and SBS. She's appeared on You Can't Ask That and Cyber Hate on ABC TV and is currently writing a memoir called Say Hello. Carly lives with the rare genetic skin condition ichthyosis. She reflects on how this has informed her work as an appearance activist. Our host today is Melissa Kavanagh from the University of Melbourne.
1: Carly, what is an appearance activist and does it describe what you do?
2: It's just talking about people that look different, making people more confident, I guess, hopefully encouraging people to be more confident about what they look like. Really calling out that, I wouldn't say trolling, but... um, appearance-ism, you know, is that the right term, where there's reporting on people that look different and would that be a story if they didn't look different, for example. So
1: as an activist and I suppose as a disability advocate, mm-hmm. do people expect you to represent them and their issues in a certain way? I think there's an expectation to be
2: everything to everyone as well, not just about disability, which I find interesting. And I obviously recognise my privilege that I've been lucky uh, to have always been in in employment and also, you know, to have been university educated. And I know there's so many people that haven't had that chance for whatever reason, um, but probably mostly due to the low expectation of people with disability. So I don't feel at all qualified to talk about things like um, Centrelink benefits or violence or poverty, because I... I don't feel I can represent that well. And I wouldn't want to speak on anyone's behalf because I haven't experienced that. But recently I put out an article on my Facebook page about a woman, a friend of mine, who is having weight loss surgery and another person that I've come to know through writing is um, calls herself a fat activist or fat feminist. She was very angry that I shared this, that I was expected to teach people how to love their bodies And I didn't really provide much of a comment, you know, when I put it out. I just said, I wish my friend the best of luck. It was a really honest interview. It didn't mean I agreed with what she was doing or not. I wasn't explicit in that. But I got torn to shreds on Twitter because I was expected to carry a line that all women should be a certain way, I think. And to an extent, I could see that because I am very much about not changing your face to fit in. So perhaps that should extend to not changing your body. But I, I don't know, if this, if this surgery makes her comfortable, then that's great.
1: So Carly, you're often in the media mm-hmm. being interviewed, um, you know, in both print and online forums and in yep. radio as well. And yep. you're also a journalist who writes on disability issues mm-hmm. for different audiences. Yep. How can the media help shift our understandings of disability, do you think?
2: Most of the time I feel that the reporting is terribly poor in terms of the way words are used. So things like wheelchair bound, um, suffers from, but there's the issue of the language. Um, There's also this issue of inspiration porn. That's a term that Stella Young coined. Inspiration porn is the objectification of people with disability, often to make non-disabled people feel better about themselves. Like, oh, well, you know, my life's not that bad now. If this person can go to work and they've only got one arm sort of thing. There's also an issue of lots of disabled voices being drowned out by non-disabled writers or reporters or actors or radio personalities or whatever. I think that's a really big issue. I often see people that are writing about disability who don't have a disability getting congratulated, oh, I'm so glad you're bringing light to this issue, or, you know, thank you, you're so strong to report it, you've done such a great job. It's so tricky with reporting and, you know, I, I really hope to see more actually disabled people report like writing about issues. Recently, there was in 2017 there was a incident on a football field where a um, footballer made a slur. He said the R word, and well, he he apologised in the football. Um, Association or whatever, they apologise as well. People in the media, particularly football um, veterans, you know, like media commentators who are football veterans, were excusing it. And I remember one prominent footballer now, radio host, said, um, oh, but, you know, it's the law of the land, it's fair game, you can't comment on um, race, sexuality or religion, but you can comment, like make these ableist slurs. And I wrote an article about it and I, I consulted with a friend and she's got some contacts there and, and knows the game I, because I don't know anything about football. I wanted to get my terminology right. I wanted to see whether the AFL works with disability organisations as well, because I think it's completely hypocritical if they do and then they, they don't penalise for this behaviour. And I also wanted to say that when a fan makes a racist remark, they get their membership revoked. Um on my friend's Facebook page when she put this out, fans were saying, "Oh, but people regularly use the r word in in the crowd, and they report this bad behavior and nothing gets done. So I wrote this article, and um I, I submitted it to a newspaper. And anyway, I they said, "Oh, sorry, we're going to go with another contributor." The next day, a friend of mine said, "Hey, did you pull your article from the age or or did they say no?" I said, "Well, they said no." And the article was by a student who said, they aren't disabled, and they said they're a voice for the voiceless. So they claim to need to speak on behalf of people with disabilities, even though they don't have a disability. And the points they made were very fair, but they took that disabled voice. So I didn't really know what to do. I thought, oh, should I make it public that my article got dropped for this free, you know, possibly free published article or um, not? And I put it in a writing group and one of my editors that I um, that I know messaged me going, you know, if you don't want to make it public, why don't you send an email to the editor? So I had a plane trip to do this. I sent this long email to the editor to say, you know, why this wasn't right and what happens when you don't pay someone. It just perpetuates this idea that we, you know, we shouldn't be paid and, and then the voice for the voiceless stuff, all of that. And and then I also wrote to the to the writer, the non-disabled writer, and I said, you know, you've You've got to be really careful by saying you're a voice for the voiceless. That means that you're saying that we can't speak for ourselves, and we can. We shouldn't have to fight. We we shouldn't have to fight to be heard. And if there's a person without a disability writing the article, they need to make sure they interview people with disability, not just parents and carers, but actual people with disability.
1: I'm interested in, in the range of things that you're doing. You're lecturing yep. medical students on genetics here mm-hmm. at the university. Yep. You're speaking at the Emerging Writers Festival. You've got a writing group. You've got quippings going on, and you're also appearing at the Women of Letters event coming yeah. up. How do all these roles fit with your... Current work and your interests? My goal is to, you know, be more mainstream
2: in, in the media and not necessarily talk about disability. Stuff like Women of Letters, I am i haven't written my piece yet, it's in a month, but my, I'm a bit torn. Do I talk about disability because I've got the responsibility? I feel like there's a bit of a responsibility to do that. Or do I talk about something else in my life and then show you how broad my life is? So there's that. Um, I think that's really an exciting event because I can... You know, i got this – Rebecca Gibney's talking (laughs) with me. (laughs) I'm really excited about that. My mum's coming down and, you know, so there's there's that. The Emerging Writers Festival, you know, it's great. I I attended as a participant for many years and now I've been in the festival for about three times now, I think, or four times, which is great, you know, working with other writers. Um, And, again, it's it's on disability stuff, although there was one that I didn't do that was on disability a few years ago, which was good. And then the the university stuff's really great because I love that my – professor who is a professor at the hospital that I attend, she values my experience enough to ask me to talk at university. So I've done two lectures this year and I probably will continue two lectures with the School of Medicine going forward. Yes, it's great to have that.
1: You have a very strong social media presence mm-hmm. and you have been a target of some pretty awful commentary mm-hmm. online. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that? It's interesting because people say, well, you put yourself out there, you've
2: got to expect it. Um, I don't expect any abuse wherever I am. So I think that the online things are a fallacy. You know, that online justification is a fallacy because you've got to, you know, online is real life. And I'm reading every one of those comments that come through. So most recently I put up a photo of myself with Liz Carr, who works on Silent Witness on the BBC, and um, she was out for the Melbourne Comedy Festival and she and i had this a uh, really great time uh, with her with her wife and we had dinner and then we had this photo and i put it up and you know i got heaps of likes on instagram and then in the morning um, i saw that this this guy had left a comment to say you get plastic surgery and then take another photo make sure it's more attractive anyway <laughs> so i cuz it was you know my instagram's public and this comment was public i screenshot it i made the comment public on my Instagram. I didn't want to encourage a pile on. I was mindful of that, but I also wanted to show just the stuff that I get. Yeah. Um and then his justification was firstly he was kind of laughing at it. Oh, this is so funny. And then it was like, "Oh, I'm really sorry. I've never done this before. I promise I'm a good guy. You know, I volunteer all the time." And I'm like, "Yeah, sure you are." And then his his girlfriend came on to um like uh, sis. <laughs> and she she was really critical towards Liz's wife. She said, oh, in the nicest way possible, F off. So there's that kind of stuff. I think through building a social media presence, um, it's very supportive. I don't have to take it on myself. But, you know, a few years ago with Reddit, when um, my photo was misused on Reddit, um, and I woke up to hundreds, thousands of comments to tell me how awful I looked, that, that was quite hard. Um, but I think if that hadn't
1: have happened, my profile probably wouldn't have increased. So so do you feel that that's a way of kind of shifting people's attitudes to, yeah. be, to yeah. respond to those things when they happen? Yeah, absolutely. I'll call it out.
2: You know, I was saying um, the other day that I, you know, I've called people's employers to tell them. If they've harassed me online or when I was on You Can't Ask that, someone said that uh, they followed me from the ABC post where they told me that I don't know what I'm talking about. And I said, I quoted Stella Young or something. And then they said, I don't know what I'm talking about. I said, well, I'm actually on the show. <laughs> and then they followed me from that post to the article that I wrote about um, You Can't Ask that for Daily Life. And they told me that my face needed a content warning. And I I called their employer. <laughs> their employer said that they can't do anything because it's a breach of privacy given a
1: member of public has reported it. So it goes nowhere. It goes nowhere. In terms of your growing recognition mm-hmm. out in the public, I imagine that many people or some people feel that they know you a little bit or that mm. they're really familiar with you. Does this lead to strange questions from strangers? Well, I or? get strange questions anyway. <laughs> but I have
2: had really high expectations from people and then I've disappointed them in some way, which is really odd. What do you mean by that? I've had people get really disappointed that I can't diagnose them with their skin condition. I get a lot of questions about diagnosis and I had someone tell me I was incredibly busy around the time that I won that Women of Influence Award and they were messaging me and just constant, very needy, very – and I guess they finally found someone like, oh, my God, I can't believe I found someone like me. And they had said to me from my post that they believe they have ichthyosis. And I said, I can't diagnose you. I am not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. And then they were getting really like, oh, my gosh, can you have a look at this rash? And and then there was a couple of days when I didn't respond because I was just so exhausted. I'd traveled to Sydney. I'd done this full-time job and I had all these speeches and stuff to do as well. And then I get this message to tell me that they expected more of me, that I didn't respond, that, that you know, they thought that I was going to be their friend and their confidant and I wasn't, oh, it, you know, it's it's huge. But there's also really, well, there's really happy moments, you know, when people say, because of you, I can now feel confident enough to wear short sleeves in summer or um, that they can tell their story, not even to the media but just to someone else, you know. Some some people haven't even told their husbands that they've got ichthyosis. You know, because there's lots of different variations. But some people haven't even been confident to do that. So if they can read my story and then tell their partner or their kids that they've got the condition, that's huge.
1: What changes would you like to see happen to improve the health of people with disabilities?
2: Well, I think this is more of a social services issue but it still relates to health. So my disability is a skin condition called ichthyosis. And it means that I need things to literally keep me alive, like paraffin cream, because if I don't put it on, I'll be dry and sore and then it will lead to infections and I can't work. And one of the things is I want to be a fully participating member of society. So I want to work. I do work. I've never not worked since I've been 17, but I do not get any support from the government. I want there to be some more recognition for people with disability that choose and can work to help us support ourselves. I would like to see that every time people with disability or chronic illness have to renew disability support pensions or whatever, they don't have to keep saying, yes, we have the condition, yes, it's still here, a year later. I know that when, when I my parents used to get carer's allowance or whatever it was back then, They would always have to prove that I still had ichthyosis. It's it's never going to go away. A quick search will tell you that this is for life. I would like to go to a doctor that doesn't necessarily ask me about my skin when I'm just there for a cold. Um, One thing I said to the ABC when I read an article for the ABC in 2016, and also I said it to the university students here, is that if a doctor encounters a person with a rare condition we're not like a prize we're not like oh, we've never seen you before you know i don't want to be that prize for someone i could get by with using the basics but if a doctor recommends me a cream that's 80 dollars for 100 grams i'm not going to buy that
1: but if there was some kind of subsidized absolutely system or the pbs covered that then yeah. you would and it yeah. would improve your mm-hmm. day-to-day health yeah As a seasoned interviewee, as someone Mm -hmm. who's asked questions Mm -hmm. often, what is the question that you wish you were asked more?
2: Maybe would you like to be on our show or write for our organisation, not about disability? I think that would be really cool. I want to go on the project or something and and talk about whatever they, they talk about. I really believe we need to have more incidental appearances, not just talking about disability. You know, there's lots of us, so we can share that experience around i think we need to make sure that people aren't just talking about their niche that we're talking about a broad range of experiences you know like i would love to be interviewed for
1: for something that's not about disability how is it that in terms of shifting attitudes and changing policy and getting the evidence out there to change these ideas about disability how do you represent that diversity? Mm. Or how do you advocate for that diverse community?
2: One thing that I did realise, and I realised this through mentoring at the um, Children's Hospital in the Chronic Illness Peer Support Program, is that even though we all have different disability, there's a lot of barriers that we all face. So things like, you know, not being able to catch a cab without being questioned or or discriminated against. There's things like being stared at and, you know, low expectations of us and, and stuff like that. So we have we have the same kind of disabling barriers, even though we have different impairments. I think that we really need to talk with government and education and healthcare systems and, and retailers about that there's a diversity of disability. When I was abused by a taxi driver in 2013, one of the outcomes that I wanted from the Human Rights Commission is to show the diversity of disability. It wasn't just limited to wheelchairs and guide dogs. It was about people that you know have sensory disorders or people that have mental health conditions or people like me, whose face apparently was going to ruin the taxi driver's car. So I want to talk about the the diversity of disability, that not everyone's access needs are the same and that not everyone's ability is the same. And also that by us speaking up and saying what our needs are, that should be able to help us, not limit us. Thanks,
1: Carly, for talking to us today.
0: So that's another episode of Five Things About. Thanks to Carly Findlay and Melissa Kavanagh. This podcast was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on the 31st of May, 2017. Audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour. Production by Melissa Kavanagh with assistance from Claudia Hooper. The Five Things About podcast is a University of Melbourne training program created by Dr. Andy Horvath. Still curious? Nip over to our other podcasts up close and eavesdrop on experts for more. I'm Chris Hatzis.